We're so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, welcome back to another segment that we're going to be going through as we hit Luke chapter 9. Um, it was pretty intense as going through chapter 8. is the, um, the first time that I think in this series going over Luke that we've done, we've had to do two parts over it. And even at that, there was so much content that I almost made it three parts, but I kind of pressed through um, on the last, the second part of chapter 8. And so we're going to go into chapter 9. This one also is pretty lengthy, so we're going to try to get through this in one. Um, but, I mean, I'm looking at it even right now just thinking like, man, there's no way. But yet, with God, all things are possible. So if he wants to get through 62 verses in one part and keep it under, you know, roughly about 45 minutes or so, then, um, you know, glory to God on that. And so we're going to get right into this one. Just understand... Luke is one that is a very simple teaching. There's not a lot of complexity to it. There's not a whole lot where you have to really um, figure things out if you are in the Spirit, if you are in Christ. It is very simple, very point blank, and yet in his simplicity, there is so much depth to it that I think goes unnoticed and even undiscovered in much of the church today. And so we're going to get into this, and hopefully we'll be able to get through it all. We'll see what God has for us. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Now here's an interesting point before I even keep going. He said he gave the twelve. That includes Judas. That means that Judas had the authority and had power over demons. I'll just let that kind of sit in just for a second, but I want you guys to realize that. It says, over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money. And do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now, one of the things that you don't necessarily see in this passage, but you will see it in other passages, is that he always sent them two by two. He never sent them individually. And that is a, is a, uh, a crucial understanding even just for the concept of church leadership today, is that it's not intended to have one man in charge. Because there's only so much that one man can do. God's authority rests where there's two or three. And we know that in Scripture simply because that's what Scripture teaches us. You look in Matthew 18. Um, I think it's Matthew 18. Maybe it's Matthew 19. I always get it confused which, which, which one is the... Um, Yes, Matthew 18. If you look at Matthew 18, it talks about this concept of where two or three are gathered, there I am with them. That's not a fellowship passage. That's a church discipline passage. Church discipline is not supposed to be enacted with just simply one man in charge. Church discipline, to have a charge established, it must be on the evidence of two or three witnesses, or in this case, two or three leaders. And so the concept of Jesus sending them out two by two is in direct contrast to that of the Old Testament in which God sent out his prophets one by one. You won't find two prophets sent together at the same time. You see Elijah and Elisha, but that was because there was now a changing of the guard. Elijah was not necessarily going out with Elisha. It was Elijah was now training Elisha to take his place. You won't find a time in the Old Testament in which there was two prophets who were sent out together on equal footing and saying, both of you, go. You had prophets who overlapped each other. You had times in which maybe one prophet was here and one prophet was there in different regions. You had different people, but they were one by one as they were sent out. In the New Testament, you won't find it one by one. You always find it two by two. 
Now maybe there's a story with Philip who in Acts is being led to his next location and there's some things that are happening, but he wasn't sent out. It wasn't a a, a sending out where Philip was some rogue apostle who just went around or Philip was some rogue disciple who just went around and just did his own thing. No, it was always two by two. Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas, Barnabas and, and Silas. You know, it was always Peter and James. It was always two by two. And in church leadership, that's why it talks about, even in Acts, when it talks about, it says that they appointed elders to every church. You're not supposed to have one church that only has one elder. If that's you, then you need to begin working towards having a body of elders that govern the affairs of the church. Okay, side note from that one. We're going to keep going on it. It says, take nothing for your journey. Why, why would he tell them to take nothing for their journey? This is one of the first times that he's actually sent them out. Why would he tell them to take nothing? And, and I'll tell you what my thought process is on it, at least, is that the first stages of ministry is dependence. You need to learn how to depend on Christ. It's not that um, later on in his ministry, whenever he talks to them, he says, now those who have tunics, take it. Those who have this, take it. Those who have that, take it. Is that you need to learn how to depend on Christ for what you need. It's one of the first rules of ministry. One of the first stages of ministry is learning dependence on Christ. Your utter need to depend on him for the work of the ministry. So if you are a leader in ministry and you're trying to train up leaders, this needs to be one of the first stages of what you teach them. You need to teach them not only does Christ have everything that they need for the work of the ministry. But you need to teach them how to rely upon it. And in order to do that, you need to place them in hard situations into where they're going to have to go to their knees and find what they need from God and not from you. Did you hear me on that? So often today, we want to be the source of people's dependence. But in ministry, as we're leaders in the church, we have got to make sure that we're appointing people how to depend upon Christ. And not us. And that's a huge step. That you've got to know how to do. So the first step to any spiritual growth spurt. That we're ever going to have. Is to not only be able to know how to depend on him. But know that he has everything we need for that. And that's going to come through trials. It's going to come through hardships. It's going to drive us to our knees. And have to go to him. And if we aren't driven to our knees, then we're not ready for leadership. So it goes on, it says, And they departed and went through villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So here's these two by two being sent out to go out with all power and authority to heal and to have authority over demons. And he says, If somebody doesn't receive you, go. Don't keep badgering him. Don't keep pestering him. Don't keep going up. I know you have the word of life. I know you have the word of truth. And you have power and authority from Christ himself to go into these towns. But these people aren't receiving you. So you need to wipe the dust off of your feet and go to the next town. Don't give dogs what is holy, as Jesus puts it. He goes on. He says, Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening. And he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead. But by some that Elijah had appeared. And by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. So here's Herod the Tetrarch, which is simply a title. It's not his actual name. Herod is a title. And he had beheaded John the Baptist because John was telling him that the things that he was doing in life were wrong. That he was having his brother's wife and it wasn't lawful. He should be doing it. Even as a Gentile. John didn't care if you were a Jew or Gentile. He was going to say, that's wrong, that's right. Didn't care. And he told Herod it was wrong. So Herod put him in prison. And there's this whole story with Herodias' daughter, all this various stuff that took place and John got beheaded. And now after this story, people are saying that John is now going around again. That Elijah has now come. That some other prophet from of old has kind of resurrected and now they're going through. And Herod's like, wait a second, what is going on? I need to see this dude to find out what's going on. So kind of sandwiched in there with this, he goes on into verse 10. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to the town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who have need of healing. 
Excuse me. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. I love that. Jesus is trying to do exactly what we talked about earlier, where he's trying to say, look, look, guys, you need to learn dependence. You need to learn how to rely on me. You need to learn that I'm the source of everything you need. Don't just look to me and say, okay, Jesus, you go do everything. We're, we're just going to be absent of having to do any work. And Jesus is trying to teach them, no, 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 no. You're going to have to put your hand to the plow. Oh, you're going to have to do work. But in your work, you're going to have to realize the source of your strength. In your working, when you're, when you're running hot, when you're burning, you know, you know, whatever the phrase might be there, when you are just exerting yourself to a level where you just don't feel like you have any more strength, you don't have anything more to give, you've got to learn that His grace is sufficient because that's the true meaning of Second Corinthians. Whenever he says, my grace is sufficient for my power is made perfect in weakness, Paul gives the identity of what the thorn is. He says, it's a messenger of Satan that's come to harass me. It's the oppression that Paul was facing because of his service to the gospel and for the gospel. It was the hardships, the calamities, the persecutions, the trials, and his body being weakened as a result, which is the true definition of what he says, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. He's talking about this. In the context of chapter 12, where he says this, that, in, uh, that three times he pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, that this hardship, this claim, is the, the constant oppression that this demon was bringing to, against me because of my service to the gospel. Very similar to a cross, in which three times Jesus pleaded with God, if there's any other way. But you know what God responded back to him? From what we understand, what we know of Scripture, silence. He gave him his answer and he says, there is no other way, son. This is the way that you're going to have to go. And Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done. And he moved forward in it with the grace that he needed to, to endure through the cross. And in a similar fashion, Paul is stating right here, my life has gotten so hard. For this gospel that I proclaim. And I love this gospel. And I love the Lord who's given me this gospel to proclaim. But my body is being broken down. My body is being weakened. I'm facing calamities and trials. And, and persecutions and sufferings. All on account of this gospel. Because, this, because the enemy is coming against me. And I'm getting tired. Please Lord three times. Please Lord let this stop. Just for a moment for a reprieve. So that I can just have a sabbatical and a time to get away. And here's what's said to him. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ then. That then is an indicator term that links it back to a previous mysterious notion that was being presented. And that notion is what this thorn was for him. I've heard many people, even recently as of last week, who have said that Paul doesn't declare what his thorn is. I argue that. I absolutely think he declares what it is. He's about to say it. For the sake of Christ then, I am content with the thorn. The weaknesses or my body being broken down and weakened because of the gospel. Insults, hardships, persecutions and calamities for when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul identifies the thorn. It's the sufferings that he had for Christ. Whether it be physically in his own body, or whether it be the, the oppression of the things that were happening to him as a result of, of preaching a message. Guys, that's what we have to learn as leaders. Is we have to learn how to endure through the race. As an example to those who are in our flock or who are in our charge. Whatever that might look like for you. Whether that's being an elder in a church and you actually have a flock or well, that's something as simple as being a instructed with this Sunday school leader and you have a class that you teach you need to learn how to do this and do this well how to suffer well for the kingdom of Christ and that's what he's trying to teach these men here they're in this desolate place and they say um, you give, he said to them you give them something to eat I want to see what you do with this and they came with a physical reasoning, a physical mindset. And he says, you're not ready. I need to show you something now. I think it was even Philip that came to him. And he says, 
they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. He says, should we use our physical resources to do this, Jesus? Go get 500 denarii and go, go get um, some, some bread for these guys? All we've got is five loaves and two fish. And they presented all that they had to Jesus. They said, Jesus, this is all we got. And Jesus says, I'm going to take what you give to me and I'm going to multiply it so that I can feed the flock. And I don't want you to miss this premise. This isn't a, a prosperity gospel message so that you can just give God what you have and then he'll just amplify it for your own benefit. This was, I'm going to take what you have to give to me, all that you have, everything that you've done in your own power and strength, you give it to me and I will make it enough to give to them. The gospel message that's presented in this passage is immense for church leadership. And yet I think it goes unnoticed oftentimes. This is not a five loaves, two fish for your own benefit. This is a five loaves of two fish of all that you have to give to God. And he says, it's enough. Now watch my grace take over and I'm going to give through you what is needed for them. For the glory of God. It has nothing to do with the apostles here other than a teaching lesson for them to learn how to rely upon the grace of Jesus Christ and that he is enough to give to the people what is needed. You're not. You don't have what you need. And I've seen way too many pastors trying to serve on their own strength and I've been one of them at times. You don't have what is needed to give to them. You must get it from the one who has what you don't. It's what he says in Luke 11, as we'll get to eventually. But he talks to them where he says, look, a friend of mine is coming from out of town and I don't have what's needed to give to him to minister to him. So he goes and he bangs on the door of the one who does have it. And because of his persistence and his asking and persistence and his pleading, the man rises up, gives him what he needs to give to his friend. And that is the gospel right there for us and how we lead. We don't have what other people need. To have a supernatural working, a spiritual working of grace in their life. We don't have it. But Christ does. And so we go to him and we plead with him. And we persist in our pleading with him. To give those who are in our charge what they need. In which we don't possess. And that's what he's teaching them here. He goes on, he says, have them sit down in groups of about 50, and they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. Another message in this is that the blessing of God always comes through brokenness. That that which is the blessing must be broken before that true blessing can be revealed. Same way as with Jesus Christ. His body had to be broken before the blessing of heaven could actually be revealed to the people. He already was the blessing. But until his body was broken, the blessing from heaven was not revealed. I'll give you another one. The, the two disciples on the road to, to Emmaus. They're walking along. Jesus was not revealed to them. He was talking with them. He was walking with them. Then they go and he sits down and he takes bread and he breaks the bread after blessing it. And all of a sudden it says their eyes were opened and they saw him as Jesus and then he vanished. The blessing was not revealed until there was a brokenness. And the same way for us, until we humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God, there can be no exaltation in our life. Until we humble ourselves under his hand, until our, our pride or until our spirits are broken, there cannot be the revelation of Christ in and through it. The blessing of heaven is only revealed in the brokenness of man. And he goes on, he says, Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd, and they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up twelve baskets of broken pieces. I could go into some other things on that. We're going to be four, but I do want you to understand that the blessing of God is not revealed until the brokenness of man takes place. And that we as leaders in the church... No matter what that capacity is, we as leaders, we must understand that Christ has everything that we need to keep going. Don't use our own inabilities as an excuse to take some time off. Because if, if there is anybody 
who worked hard enough to take some time off, it probably was Paul. Uh, There's not a pastor today or a leader today in the church that I think compares to Paul. Go read his list in 2 Corinthians 11 and 12 where he talks about what his life consisted of. Or in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, you can go look at what the lives of the apostles consisted of and what they were doing every single day. Nobody worked harder than Paul. And all he wanted was some time off and Jesus said, no. You have to learn how to rely on my grace to get through those hard times. And so I'm not a fan of pastors taking sabbaticals today. I don't care how old you are. There's not an age requirement for grace to be applied to your account. I'm not a fan of it. I don't think it's the best way. There might be some good that could come from it, but I don't believe it to be the best way. And we as leaders, not only do we need to have this reconciled to ourselves, but we also need to teach those who are grooming to lead the same lesson. So, going on, it says, Now it happened that he was, um, as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets from old has arisen. Same thing that Herod was saying. He said, who do the people say that I am? And they're just recounting what the people say. And then here's this one um, vital question that he asked them. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And you could go back into the Matthew account and you could find that he talks about this concept where he says, upon that declaration of who I am, I'm the Christ, the Son of the living God, upon that declaration, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now there's a a belief in Catholicism that that's referencing Peter as the rock, that Peter is the beginning of God's church. But let me just ask you, if he was referencing Peter, why did he say it? You're not following me. You can go back into Matthew and go read that he's talking to, to Peter. And he says, I tell you, Peter, you are, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, all right, now there's some ambu- get, uh, uh, discrepancy between what he might be meaning at that point. I could see how a Catholic would say, oh, Peter's the first pope. I could see how a Protestant would say, no, 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 he's referencing faith. This proclamation of faith. I could see that. But he goes on, he says, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. If he wanted to identify Peter as the rock and what the gates of hell will not prevail against, he would have said, the gates of hell will not prevail against you. But he didn't. He said, it. The gates of hell of hell will not prevail against it. It is the proclamation of faith in the person of Jesus Christ, not the person of Peter. But he wants to identify something in this passage real quick. And that is, I don't care what your daddy says. I don't care what your pastor says. I don't care who this person says that I am. What it all is going to come down to is who do you say that Jesus Christ is? Because you won't get to get into heaven on the coattails of anyone else. It all is about who do you say that Jesus is? That's the question you will have to give an account for when you stand before the judgment seat of God. He's going to say, who do you say my son is? And not just what you say with your lips, but what did you prove with your life? Is he Lord? Or were you? Is he Lord of your life or were you Lord of your life? Did you heed his word? And what he said for you needed to do and how you needed to live or was it more about in line with what you wanted in life? Be doers of the word, not hearers only deceiving yourselves. The point is, is it doesn't matter what other people say about Jesus. What it matters is what you say about him. And that's the point that he's trying to make here. He goes on, he says, And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So he gives them this illustration of telling them, Look, guys, these things are going to have to happen. I'm going to have to suffer. They still didn't get it. They still didn't understand. Even later on, I believe it's even in Luke, it might be in Matthew, where he's telling them these things again. He's explaining to them again. And I think it's James and John that come to him and they say, Hey, 
granted to us, like with their mom, where they say, hey, granted to us to sit at your right hand. It's like, you're still so concerned about yourself. I just told you that I'm going to suffer and die on the third day, and you are so still concerned with yourself, of what you can get, what you can have. It's kind of like, you know, a father's on his deathbed, and, and he's like, he's going to die. I mean, it, it's a foregone conclusion. He's going to die, and he brings in his children, and he tells them, you know, hey, hey guys, I'm just, I'm here to tell you goodbye. I'm not going to see you anymore, and I'm, I'm dying. And a child comes in and says, yeah, Dad, what are you going to give to me? What's going to be mine? What's in your will? What do I get? It's a similar thing. Here's these two men that are so concerned about what they're going to get when Jesus dies. They're not concerned about Jesus himself. It goes on in 23, and this is one of my favorite passages. I was once asked, what passage would you give to somebody if you were trying, if you could only use one passage to recount the gospel? What passage would you use? And I said, you know, some people went around the room and they said John 3.16. Some others said different passages. And I said, Luke 9.23-24. And they're like, whoa, what's that one say? I'm not familiar with that one. Well, let's read it. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Like there is so much to unpack in that small passage. There is so much profound meat and depth to this passage that I think that many people don't even realize today in the church. Not only does he say, if you want to come after him, if you, if you want to follow him, it requires something of you first. You don't get to just say, oh yeah, I believed in my heart that, that, that Jesus was my savior, that he died on the cross for my sins. That doesn't get you any closer to God. There's only one way to be able to follow Jesus. There's only one way to even come after him. And that is to deny yourself. Your wants, your desires, your dreams and ambitions in life. You put those on the altar and you say, only if God sees fit for this to be part of my purpose, will I ever indulge it ever again. Galatians 5.24 says those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified their flesh with its desires and passions. You cannot even begin to follow Jesus, let alone get saved, until that happens. If you have not crucified your flesh with its desires and passions, your dreams and ambitions and all those things, God didn't necessarily give them to you. I'm not saying that he didn't, but your dreams and ambitions are just that. They're yours. And they need to be put on the cross. Because Jesus put, was put on the cross for you. You need to deny yourself and pick up that cross daily. The denial of self, you need to be on that cross, crucified daily, if you want to follow Jesus. Don't think that you can follow him without that first prerequisite being done. We got too many people <clears throat> excuse me, who are teaching from the pulpit. That all you got to do is just confess Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life. And you just ask him into your heart and now you're forgiven and you can follow him. Well, I'm sorry. You don't get to follow Jesus until you are crucified. You don't even get to start. You don't even start the race of following him until you're crucified. Until your flesh is on the altar and you have now committed yourself to be a servant to the word of God. And the teaching of Jesus Christ. And the epistles, I should say, because that's what Ephesians 2 goes on to say. This is the beginning. It's the beginning, it's the middle, and it's the end. It is the constant daily battle to crucify yourself so that you may live in the Spirit. Whoever loses his life for his sake will find it and will have it saved in the end. But if you seek to preserve your life... Now this, this could even get into the topic of self-defense... There's a spiritual application to all of this, but I'm going to take it even to a physical application. If you're seeking to preserve your earthly life at the expense of somebody else, then you have yet to em embark on the cross of Jesus Christ because that's the exact opposite of what he did for you. Somebody breaks into your home and you're willing to take their life to preserve your life? That's the exact opposite of the gospel. In which Jesus willingly gave his life for you as a sinner. That while you were a sinner, while you broke into his house, 
He gave his life for you. Man, how twisted we have things today in the American church where we think justifiably so that we are able to defend ourselves and preserve our lives and think we're still living out the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm not a pacifist. I'm a non-resistance guy. And if you don't know the difference, I gave an analogy about this um, several years ago. And even it was reiterated to me just a couple nights ago in a women's study that they were telling me about. And somebody remembered it and they shared it. And people were like, wow, I've never, I've never thought of it like that. Pacifism is like this. And, and generally speaking, there can be different variants to it. But generally speaking, a pacifist is somebody who say there's this bully. And this, this bully who's like 6'5", 300 pounds in high school is picking on this kid that's like 5'5", 150 pounds, you know, is wiping the snot from his nose. He's just, he's a kid that can't defend himself. A pacifist is the one who's going to stand on the sidelines and be like, look, I can't get involved. I, I don't believe in, in physical violence. I don't believe in these things. So I'm just going to stand here and I'm going to pick it against the violence that's going on right behind my back. That's a pacifist. A non-resistance person is somebody who's going to step in between that bully and that boy and they say, look, I'm not going to defend myself with physical violence. I don't believe in physical violence. I'm not going to defend myself. I'm not going to seek to preserve my life, but I will take whatever it is that you wanted to give to that little boy. You're going to give it to me and I'll take it for him. And I say that because non-resistance is exactly what Jesus was. He was a person who did stand up for what was right. He did stand up for truth. But what was deemed from that bully as Satan was going to give to me, he stepped in the center and he says, look, I'm not going to seek to preserve my life. I'll give my life willingly on that cross and I'll shed my blood for that kid back there who can't defend himself. I'll take whatever it is that you wanted to give to him, you put it on me. And even more than that, Isaiah 53 says that it took the wrath of God upon himself. And yet somehow today we've justified in the American church that it is okay to preserve your life at the expense of another. Couldn't be farther from the gospel. And I hope this message resonates with you. Because as we learn in chapter 8, if you're a hearer of the word, but you don't want to do it, then the fruit of heaven will not be produced in your life. And you might not even find salvation in that last day. So he goes on, he says, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? He says, what does it profit if you get everything you wanted in your dreams and ambitions, if it comes at the forfeit of your soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. I can't emphasize this enough, guys. What does it matter if you achieve everything on earth that you've ever wanted? What does it matter if you preserve your life? What does it matter if anything, if you do it at the expense of your soul, what does it matter? Because it'll be a one and done thing. You'll have died and this life will be a microcosm of eternity. Yay. Good for you. You achieved your dreams in this short span of time so that you could spend eternity in hell. What does it matter if you gain everything you've ever wanted? But if you're willing to lay those aside, if you're willing to lay those dreams and ambitions and wants and desires and passions or whatever it might be, if you're willing to lay those aside and put them on the cross and say, God, only if you will it, only if it pleases you will I ever go after those dreams. Well, then you gain your soul for eternity. It doesn't get much better than that, guys. And it doesn't get much more clear than this. Like I said, Luke is a very simple teaching and yet there's a, um, a profoundness to it that goes so deep. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? It means the death of yourself. Every single day you put yourself on that cross and say, today I live to the glory of God. Whatever that means. That's why Paul says in Corinthians, I die daily. 
He says, every day I put myself to death so that I could live unto Christ. And he had to do it daily and so do you. It's not just that you did it at one time in your life and now you don't have to do it ever again. It's every single day you pick up that cross and you say, it is not for my glory, but for his. It is not for my satisfaction in life, but for his. That is the gospel message. And a piece of it that I think that is missing from much of the gospel proclamations today in the pulpit. So he goes on, he says, now about eight, now, yeah, now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure or his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and two men who stood with him. And as the men were, were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Now this, man, there's so much that could be, um, so much that could be expounded on in this passage. You know, we could go into Matthew 17, we could go into, you know, Joshua chapter 5 of some of what even 8 represents and the cutting away of flesh or the new beginnings. We could go into how did they know that it was Moses and Elijah? I mean, it wasn't like they had caricatures or pictures back then of these two dudes. How do they know that it was Moses and Elijah? There's all kinds of things that we could go into this. Here's what we can know for sure that kind of really stands out in this passage. Now I'm going to get in, you know, too, um, too crazy in all this. Is that Jesus was transfigured before them. That he was speaking with God on this mountaintop. That Moses, in which they don't know where the body was ever laid. We know Moses died, but they don't know where the body was laid. And Elijah, who's taken up to heaven. Moses and Elijah are speaking with Jesus on this mountain. When was the last time that Moses or that, yeah, that Moses was speaking where God's presence was, um, was found? It was at Mount Sinai. And what was the charge that was given? If even a beast touches this mountain, they will die. So much so was the glory that came on that moment that there was peals of thunder and lightning and, and you know, like almost like a volcanic lightning storm that was going on around Mount Sinai at this time. It says, if anyone touches this mountain, they're going to die. And here, Peter, James, and John are finding themselves on top of this mountain. God's presence is overshadowing them. And they're talking about the Exodus, the very thing that Moses orchestrated. I can tell you, they're terrified. And he even says that throughout the gospel accounts. You get that understanding. They were terrified when they saw all this happening. And their mind first went to, let us set up, set up tabernacles for you, Moses, and Elijah. Why were they thinking that? It was because that's exactly what Moses was instructed to do, to do the tent of meeting. He comes down and he says, you're going to put up a tent of meeting exactly in this fashion. And my spirit's going to fill that tent. Well, here's the fascinating part is that they look at him. They say, let us make three tents or tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. He wasn't aware of what he said. They were terrified. But here's what's interesting is there would be a tabernacle that would be set up. They were right in their thinking that just as it was prophesied or foreshadowed at Mount Sinai, that there was a tent of meeting where God's spirit was going to come down and dwell in, in this tent. Right after it was declared that the Redeemer was going to be the one who led them into the exodus, into the promised land. So it is now. There was going to be this Redeemer who's going to lead them out of the darkness of their flesh and the darkness of their captivity to the law of sin and death. And he was going to redeem them out of that being the perfect sacrifice. And he was going to then set up and establish a tent in which God's Spirit was going to come down and dwell in. Not in things made by human hands but in human hearts. 
You see, this Mount Transfiguration is the exact same thing that he talks about in Romans chapter 12, 1 through 2, and he says, um, let, me, let me turn to it real quick. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship or your, your spiritual act of your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Metamorpho is the Greek word. It's where we get the English word metamorphosis. And it's the exact same word that's used here, the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus was transfigured before them. As the Son of God, He was shown in His glory. And as 2 Corinthians 4, towards the end of it says, it says that the glory of God is now revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. He was transfigured before them and they saw that transfiguration. They were terrified. Same way as Moses was transfigured when he had to wear a veil over his face because of the glory that shone upon him just simply from meeting in the presence of God. Same exact principle with Jesus here. And that which was foreshadowed of old has now come into new that when the law was ushered in through Moses for the people in this physical law that was given to the people and then this tent of meeting that was instructed to be um, erected so that the presence of God could dwell among the people. In the same way, Christ the Redeemer is now bringing this law of Christ into the people and there's this transfiguration that takes place in which he's now going to set up his holy temple, as 1 Corinthians 3 calls the church, that we are the temple of the living God. We are the temple, the tabernacle, the tent of meeting in which God's spirit now has come to dwell in us. This is a foreshadow of what was written and now fulfilled through Christ. And our job is to make sure that we walk in that transfiguration that we are no longer children of darkness and we're no longer to be conformed to the pattern of this world, but we are to be transfigured by the renewing of our mind and the knowledge of the Son of God and to a heavenly thinking. There's so much more that we could go into that God himself even gives his own um, approval to Christ and he says, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. I'd love to go into more on that, but I'm going to keep going. It says, On the next day when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. He says, how long am I to bear with your lack of faith? I'm so tired of looking out and seeing a lack of faith. And I wonder what God sees in us as his church, specifically in America. The lack of faith when it comes to your finances. The lack of faith when it comes to, to workings and miracles. The lack of faith when it comes to your ability to overcome sin. Lack of faith to have your marriage resurrected, the lack of faith to have your marriage restored, the lack of faith to have your kids come to Christ. All these things require faith in the one who can do it all. And yet here we are, just sinners saved by grace. We'll always be just an inadequate version of Jesus because that's just who we are relegated to that in life. I can't imagine what Jesus looks upon when he sees us here and sees our lack of faith. He goes on, he says, But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying. It was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about the saying. So again, Jesus says it again to them. I'm about to be delivered to the hands of, of sinners. And they're going to beat me. And they didn't understand it. He goes on, he says, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Here's that thing I referenced earlier. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him, put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Here it is that Jesus just said, I'm going to be delivered into the hands of sinners. I'm going to die. And now they're worried about who's the greatest. Who's going to sit at his right hand? 
First Corinthians chapter 1, 26 through 29. You guys can go look at that. Understanding that Jesus came to serve, not to be served. And that's our example. You want to be a great person to make sure you exhaust yourself for others. That's your commission. You want to be a leader, exhaust yourself for other people. Study harder than other people. Pray harder than other people. Serve harder than other people. Love harder than other people. Give more than other people. That's your job. You're to be an example of what it looks like to be Christ to others. And you'll be the greatest in heaven. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. Now this has a root word of, of I or us. Hermon um, is the Greek word that's used there. And it's, it's not necessarily just you, it's us. He's talking about this concept of, guys, look, there might be somebody who's, they're trying to do things on their own. And maybe they're not really following us. But that doesn't mean that they're against you. And I could go into some different ideas towards this, whether it be in denominationalism or whether it, it doesn't necessarily matter. The point is, is that just because somebody maybe isn't doing things exactly your way doesn't mean that they're not on your team. I could tell you, I could go into the church that we're going to now and I could say, I do this differently, I would do this differently, I would do this differently. And I'm not talking about in concepts of truth. There is only one truth. And people who violate that truth intentionally, 2 John 1, nine says, people who go on ahead of the teaching of Christ, don't even receive them into your house. Somebody wants to change the teachings of Christ and the clear word of God and they have a contradictory theology, which means that their theology contradicts itself with the word. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people who are doing things differently than what you or I might do. Doesn't mean that they're not on your team. He goes on, he says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans, which, by the way, Samaritans were considered half-bloods. They were hated. They were seen as unclean. and They were seen as dogs. They were seen as people who they didn't even, they weren't worthy to be in the presence of the Jews. So they avoided Samaritans altogether. They wouldn't even walk through their town. He sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was, not, was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and they went on to another village. You see kind of some of the disdain that he's speaking of. And yet Jesus is looking at them. He says, look, these are Samaritans. They didn't receive you. You want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and just consume them, just eradicate them, just take them off the face of this earth? And there's some manuscripts that add this concept. It says, and he said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. The Son of Man came not to destroy people's lives, but to save them. It goes into what I was talking about earlier. The concept of living by the sword or the concept of justice of what you think is right. That's not why the Son of Man came. He didn't come to put people in their place necessarily. To enact justice. In fact, he came to be the opposite of it, where a sinless man is the one who took the place of you. Who justly, you should have been the one who suffered on that cross. Justly, you should be the one who goes to hell. But he created an access point through the injustice done on the cross. So that you and I could have life. And here's James and John wanting to strike down these Samaritans because they rejected Jesus. And the hatred that they had. The sons of bone erges, The sons of fire. And Jesus says, you don't know what spirit you're actually of right now. Let me just tell you, people who are out there who are trying to give people vengeance or revenge or whatever it might be, you're not of the spirit of Christ. People who are out there who are trying to retaliate, who are trying to take the lives of other people in order to preserve some semblance of freedom or some semblance of knowledge of this earth, you're not of the spirit of Christ. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Now listen very carefully because I'm going to end with this. I will follow you wherever you go. The person came to Jesus and said, I will follow you wherever you go. And there's a lot of people who come to Jesus and they say that same thing. I'll go wherever you go. I'll follow wherever you go. And Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He says, this isn't my home. Are you willing to treat it like that? I don't have anywhere to lay my head that I can call my own. This isn't my home. My home resides with the Father in heaven. That's my home. 
And if you're wanting to live this life in such a way where you think that this is your home, then you can't follow me. I don't care how enthusiastic you are about coming to me saying you wanted to follow me. If you're going to live like this is your home, then you cannot follow me. He goes on and he says this to another. He said, so now Jesus is saying to another person, follow me. But here's what the guy said in response. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. He says, if you want to follow me, then your allegiance or your devotion to your father cannot come before your allegiance and devotion to me. Your mission is to not be on this earth to take care of your dad. Your mission is to proclaim the glory of the kingdom of God. That's your mission. And if you think that you can violate that heavenly mission for an earthly commission, then you can't follow me. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Christian, listener, are you hearing what I'm saying? Are you hearing what the word of God is saying? I should say so more so. These people wanted to follow Jesus. Jesus asked one guy and the other guy asked Jesus to follow him. And both of them were making some excuses. Jesus is trying to give them a perspective shift to say, if you want to follow me, then that means that you are going to have to let go of things of this earth. If they conflict with things of heaven. If your mission for heaven is conflicted by anything of earth, then you must follow me and not the things of this earth. Listen to this last one. This one might be um, a little bit more difficult because maybe you have a, maybe you're estranged with your father. Maybe that's not a big thing for you, but maybe this last one is going to be different for you. He says, yet another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. He says it's not even talking about his duty unto his father as a, as a custom of the law that a, the firstborn child, that you were to actually do that. I'm not saying you don't have a duty to honor your father. I'm not saying you don't have a duty to take care of your father. I'm saying if it conflicts with the mission of heaven. And here's this next one. It gets a little bit more point blank for him where he says, look, those who are actually living in my home who are closest to me, it's probably a wife and some children. He says, let me first go and say farewell to them. Sounds like a reasonable request, right? Jesus is just going to kind of stand there waiting and waiting and waiting for him to get back and say, okay, yeah, yeah, go, uh, this seems reasonable. Go tell them goodbye. Then you can follow me. He says, no, no, no. You're not ready to follow me because if you're still thinking about them instead of me, then you're not ready to follow me. What does Jesus say to him? No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. See, these are costs of following Jesus. The denial of self. And yet today, we've seemed to reason those things away. We seem to say the family is your first ministry. That's what you really need to be primarily be concerned with. Because you know what? God, that's just God's commission for you. Well, I'm sorry. If God's commission for you violates the mission ultimately that you were sent with to testify to the kingdom of God, to the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if it conflicts with that, if it seeks to, to rival um, the attention in your life for it, then you're not following Jesus. You might be saved, but you're not imitating him because that's not what he did. Even in 1 Corinthians seven twenty nine, it says the appointed time has grown short from now on those who have wives live as though they had none. That's Paul's commission. He says, I don't care if you're married or single. In verse 35, he says, I want you to have undivided devotion to the Lord, to your mission from heaven. That doesn't mean that you don't have service to do here on earth. It doesn't mean that you don't honor your wife, that you don't treat her well. You don't show her that she has a tremendous value as the helper that she is in your life. Doesn't mean you don't love your kids and raise them up in the Lord. Those are all missions underneath our main mission. But if those missions ever conflict with the mission that God gives to us, then we are to count the cost. I'll give you one example of a guy named C.T. Studd. Guy came back when he was about 52 years old because his health was declining. He was in China. His health was declining to such a level that he had to move back to Europe in order to get his health back to where it needed to be. So he went back and that's where he was born or that's where he was raised. His mom was there. He and his wife went back. 
And they had suffered a lot of hardships in, in China in their uh, ministerial work there, let alone than just his health. And he comes back and he's starting to feel a little bit better. And he sees this guy named Alfred who's proclaiming that he wants to go to Africa to preach the gospel. And all the, like immediately it resonates with C.T. Studd because he has a, minute, uh, a missionary's heart. He just wants to testify to the glory of God. And so he listens to Alfred and he wants to sign up. So him and Alfred go to the mission board and the mission board rejects him from going because of his health. They said, look, you're not fit to go. You're going to die within a matter of probably weeks, maybe months, maybe a, short, or a few handful of years, but you're going to die because your health cannot sustain um, ministerial work like that. And he took that. Um, he didn't take no for an answer. And so he said, look, we're going to find our own way. And we're going to go because I know that the Spirit of God is compelling me to go to Africa to go testify to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he goes and he tells his wife, and he wants his wife to come with him. And his wife says, no. She says, I'm not going. His mother comes to him and says, CT, why are you breaking my heart by going and doing this? You know you're going to die. You're not fit to go. You're 52 years old. Just take some rest. Just take some time. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing some of what was probably stated. But tried to really manipulate him into not going. And immediately in his journal he writes about in Luke 14, 26 to 27 came to his mind about if I love my wife or my mom more than I love my calling for Christ, then I'm not worthy to be his disciple. And so he counted the cost and he went anyways. And he served in Africa for 20 years and he almost witnessed to the entire continent. And yes, I didn't say just country. I said the entire continent of Africa through God's grace and provision. C.T. Studd and Alfred started a ministry organization that was there that almost reached the entire continent. Not having the privileges of you and I with television or radio and all that various stuff, they almost reached the entire continent. It took them a month and a half just to get to the central part of Africa where they were going to set up their headquarters. They slept feet away from crocodiles at night. Not knowing if those crocodiles were going to get, they had to trust in the provision of God and his protection over them for the mission that God had appointed them to. And what's cool is that while his wife didn't go with him, it was several days, if not maybe it was a couple weeks, that she came under conviction. And she was praying to God and she was just basically griping. And God put her in a place. And she came under conviction and she repented and she said, I was wrong. I shouldn't have stood in his way. I should have gone with him. And instead of going to go join him, she ended up staying over in England and became a recruiter to send missionaries over to their missionary organization. So they still served as one, as a married couple, even though they were on opposite ends of the world. And that is placing the mission of heaven above your mission on earth. And it's biblical and Jesus says, you can't even follow me or you can't even be my disciple if you're not doing it. And so I hope that this message resonates with you. I know it's a lengthy one and we had 62 verses to cover and I don't ever want to shortchange anything, but I also want to make sure that I'm hitting points that are going to give you things to chew on. Things for you to go and study yourself, to take these things into the full light of the word and say, you know, is there merit to these things? Holy Spirit, please teach me these things. As First John 2 says, that you don't have any need for man to teach you. As the Holy Spirit abides in you, abide in him. I want you to take these things and I want you to learn for yourself how to study the word, how to go into it. And I'm just giving you tidbits of breadcrumbs for you to go and take. Some things I'm going to be, be blunt with and I'm going to fill you up and say, hey, here's what it is. And other things I'm going to give you just enough to where I want you to go and learn how to study for yourself and let the Holy Spirit fill you with his wisdom and his word of truth. Because that's what his job is, is to lead us into all truth. But in order to be led into all truth, you must be willing to receive it. In order to receive it, you must be able to hear it. And that is a privilege that God gives only to believers, as, as John 10, 26 and 27 says. That we who are in Christ have the unbelievable privilege to know Him, to hear Him, and to follow Him. But whether or not you are actually doing those things in your life is up to you. All John 10, 26 to 27 says is that we have the ability to know Him. It's been given to us in Christ. 
We have the ability to hear his voice when before we didn't. We have the ability to gnosko, to know him intimately as before we didn't. And we have the ability to follow him. But if you are following him, if you are choosing to know him more deeply and to hear his voice, it all depends on whether or not you choose to. If you're walking in those things. And so, take the breadcrumbs, study the word, trust that God is going to reveal to you his truth in the fullness of the text, not in fragmental um, aspects of it, but in the fullness of it. And take those breadcrumbs and find that bread of life that he wants to give to every person that's manifest in the word of truth. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And you all be blessed.